Welcome to Hearsay. I'm Shiloh Meloshenko, and I'm happy to be back for another season on the podcast. I'm also excited to introduce two new additions to Hearsay. Cheers, everyone. My name is Gregory Radisic. I'm so excited to be here this season. If you're an avid uh, listener of Hearsay, you might have heard me on the last episode with Marcus and Jake. Hello, my name is Jack Hoskins, and I'm glad to be here. In coming up with the topic for today's episode, both of you came forward looking to discuss internet regulation and cyber propaganda. And now in light of uh, the, uh, the Cambridge Analytica issue, Facebook users are asking, I think, some new questions right now. Can I believe what I'm seeing? And who has access uh, to this information uh, about me? A new multi-million dollar program at IU will investigate how information and misinformation spread online. Fake news is a growing problem worldwide, including right here in Canada. Ottawa is taking steps to stop its spread, but a new survey suggests that many Canadians have already been duped by misinformation online. Fake news and its reach has come into the spotlight recently, and many organizations are trying to fix it. In fact, Google is now joining the pack. Last month, the company launched a $300 million campaign called Google News Initiative across the U.S., and right now, Google is in talks with Canadian publishers to integrate them into this new platform. So since this was a topic that both of you were interested in covering, I'm curious why you think this topic matters and why you're personally interested in it right now. Well, I first became interested in this topic when I was doing my master's thesis on Chinese internet policy, China's regulation of people who report corruption on social media. And I was doing that around 2015 to 2017. So right in the middle of my work, 2016 happened with Trump and Brexit, and I noticed in the media coverage there was a lot of uh, a lot of analogous stuff going on in the West to what I had been reading about in the literature on Chinese politics and Chinese propaganda regulation, and I realized that a lot of the same issues are going on in both the democratic West and in authoritarian post-communist China. So I became interested in these issues here because they obviously much more directly affect me. And I think that this stuff is important because it affects your ability to make, or arguably it affects your ability to make rational choices when you, say, vote for politicians. And we need to understand propaganda and its effects in order to make better decisions about the issues that affect us most going forward. Well, along similar lines to Jack, I first became interested in the topic during my undergrad. Uh, I did a degree in German, and as one can imagine, a lot of the German history tends to be about how an entire population became essentially brainwashed Um, by a certain doctrine. And following that, I went into a master's in marketing, which a lot of that has to do with the current regulations or even lack thereof of regulation within the marketing and advertising spheres. So um, all in all, propaganda is not just a thing of the past, it's a thing of the present, uh, and hopefully it is more controlled going on in the future. In order to guide our discussion, we have a guest here today, Emily Laidlaw. I am an associate professor in the Faculty of Law, 
And what I do is generally technology regulation. And so what I look at is things like platform regulation, so the the regulation of companies like Facebook and the Googles and the Twitters of the world that basically provide access to third-party content. I do a lot of work in the area of privacy and cybersecurity and human rights and technology issues. And then also outside of university context, I am the ethics advisor to the City of Calgary, counselors of the City of Calgary. We began by asking Dr. Laidlaw about the different approaches that have been taken around the world, mainly in the U.S. and Europe, to solving this problem of disinformation campaigns, of hate propaganda, of fake news. How do you regulate the platforms that make sharing of this particular content possible? And, you know, on the one hand, there is the view that, you know, the marketplace of ideas is the appropriate way to regulate this, which is essentially to say that you fight speech with speech, that if you let this information circulate, individuals will be able to discern and figure out the truth, be able to correct any untruths, and in that way, this is kind of the best regulatory settlement, right? And the other view is that there needs to be quite hefty regulation of this particular content. And often the targets are these platforms, that the target should be that Facebook and Twitter have a responsibility to control and track this particular content and make sure that it is not shared on their platform. And there's some real risks with this, and this is something that I think I'd certainly love to talk about in a lot more detail. Next, we asked Dr. Laidlaw about a term you've probably heard of if you paid attention to the news over the last couple of years, disinformation. Disinformation is generally defined as the deliberate spreading of false information to deceive. Fittingly enough, the word comes from the Russian word desinformatia, derived from the title of KGB Black Propaganda Department. And supposedly, Joseph Stalin coined the term. Disinformation has a long history, especially in authoritarian and totalitarian countries, the USSR and North Korea, being a couple of famous examples. But defining a topic to explain it and defining a topic to regulate it are two quite different projects. If there's one thing that every legislator, every lawyer, and every judge knows, it's that definitions are deceptively difficult, especially when regulation hinges on them. And if not done properly, they can mean the difference between excellent law and a terrible one. How do you actually define what disinformation is? And to be able to then create a standard to impose on these particular companies if it's even appropriate in the first place. Disinformation itself is not, at least on its face, illegal. There's no specific laws against disinformation. And in fact, what I'm seeing on the other side is actually more of a struggle. So I've read, you know, government reports that say we should look at imposing obligations on platforms to remove manifestly illegal content. And sometimes they'll mention things like disinformation. Well, the problem is, is that disinformation itself isn't illegal. And therefore, it doesn't track to frame it in that way, right? So what we were doing right now is trying to further categorize it as well. Can you say that it's defamatory, for example? And I can't remember right now what the story was about Hillary Clinton and 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 the that that pizza joint. Fake news, real gunfire. According to police, Welch said that he had read online that the Comet Ping Pong restaurant was harboring child sex slaves, and that he wanted to see for himself if they were there. The suspect said he was armed to help rescue them. The accusation came from this unhinged story that originated online days before the election, saying that Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman John Podesta were operating a child sex ring. 
The lie took root in the digital swamps of Twitter and far right-wing websites. Something like that would be defamatory, right? So you have a legal area and you wouldn't frame it as disinformation. You would say this is untrue and harmful to reputation. And yes, it has an impact on democracy, but we could actually sue for defamation here. Disinformation is much more complicated because it's about a slight shift in perspective and in storytelling, and some of it is blanket lies, which would be fit under the category of defamation, but others aren't. They're about feeding into our own bias, right? It's the idea of confirmation bias, that you're just feeding you the same information that confirms your particular perspective on the world. Then it's further complicated by the fact, and this might be pulling us in a whole other direction, but that a lot of this is being communicated and shared not just by individuals, but by bots. Like disinformation, bots predate the concern over election security and online propaganda. Bots are something that you're no doubt familiar with if you've ever received spam emails, if you've ever seen strange, repetitive comments on internet forums. A bot is simply a program that performs repetitive tasks at much higher rates than any human would be capable of. When bots are used for propaganda and disinformation purposes, who is responsible? The bot is not a conscious actor. Is it a designer of the bots? Is the ones that have unleashed it? Is it? Is there no avenue to hold anybody responsible? And what kind of responsibility do you want to impose? Is it liability for the content itself? Or are we just looking to kind of rein this in and take down that content? But that's a different regulatory regime. People are entitled to be biased. They're entitled to hold offensive opinions. But what they're not allowed to do is express content that's, for example, promoting hate speech or, as I mentioned, defamation, or it might be even a situation where it perhaps could be an invasion of privacy if they were revealing particularly unreasonable and offensive, sensitive information about somebody. But disinformation is just its own category. It's, it's a strange one, and it's, it's really hard to pin down. And one of the biggest risks is that if it's not pinned carefully, you end up capturing a whole host of content that's incredibly important in value with our right to freedom of expression and important as part of participation in democracy. There is a specific challenge to regulating technology, that being that innovation is legal, and innovation happens fast, often much faster than policymakers and committees can get together to respond. The law is often outpaced by technology, and that it's really hard to predict where the technology is going to go. And so some of the things that end up being debated are whether, you know, if you really want to narrowly target a mischief, technology-specific regulations are ideal. But generally, they're frowned on. And the reason is that often then the technology moves on quickly, people's behaviors move on quickly, and so then the law becomes a dinosaur and doesn't actually address the mischief. So how to design these laws at the moment is the great big question. I know that I've been doing a lot of work in a kind of a different area, but just more generally about how you deal with privacy and technology. And and I've come to the conclusion that we almost need to be more directed to say that you should be mindful of technology. Maybe not specifically what the technology is, but you need to be mindful of technology in the context and its impact. While there aren't disinformation-specific laws in Canada, there are many laws that cover disinformation practices from a different angle. There's a whole host of different laws that might apply. You know, our immediate reaction is to think of this as potentially a security threat, right? But generally speaking, our national security framework, including under Bill C-59, does not particularly contemplate this. So it speaks to a gap, right, in this area that we haven't really regulated. Where you do see some regulation of disinformation 
is in a different context, and that's more communications regulation. And that would be what the obligations are on, say, private companies when it's hosting unlawful content. I would say most in Canada is dealt with under defamation law, which is when something untrue is shared that has a negative impact on reputation. Although I would say privacy probably operates the same way, that this is where the platforms might have an obligation to take down content, otherwise risk liability themselves. As for the use of these disinformation may be shared through marketing, which I guess it can sometimes be done, that are advertising is is regulated. You have kind of provincial level consumer protection laws, but also our competition laws, which essentially boil down to the idea that any advertising needs to be, it shouldn't be deceptive, it should not be misleading. There is some recent laws that are developments that are looking at the area of election laws. And so this would be, for example, the recent obligations that the government has imposed when it came to political advertising during elections, essentially creating a registry. Um, And this led, you know, to things like Google saying that it was going to prohibit any political advertising in Canada because they didn't, at least they said that they didn't think that they saw a way that they could manage that. You know, whether you agree with that perspective or not, at least this is the reason that they gave. And I'm trying to think if there are, I mean, I know that there are other laws that are implicated. I think that one of the ones is, is some of the private sector regulation of data protection and data. And this isn't as much about the communication of advertising as much as if you are a company and you are collecting and using certain data, do you share that with third parties that might then create these disinformation campaigns? And are you sharing and using the data in a way that's not permitted under our data protection legislation? Will you commit to changing all the user default settings to minimize to the greatest extent possible the collection and user and use of users' data? Congressman, this is a complex issue that I think is deserves more than a one-word answer. Well, again, that's disappointing to me. And the final one I'll mention is that there's been some discussion at a federal level about more broadly whether we should be creating new regulatory agencies or broadening the scope of existing agencies to deal with certain of the big issues that we're facing. Another term to know for internet regulation purposes is algorithm. An algorithm is a set of instructions given to a computer for completing uh, usually simple repetitive tasks, but unlike a bot, an algorithm is more basic and wide-ranging in its uses. Algorithms are used to trade stocks on the stock market, they're used to advertise things to you on Facebook, but some would say that algorithms have a corrosive effect on online discourse. They amplify the most toxic and confrontational viewpoints at the expense of everything more moderate and reasonable. Underlying all this is algorithms. So there's been some suggestion, and I, and I don't agree with this particular suggestion, but that you should be able to, say, have an agency that could audit the algorithms, for example. Some of the major questions I think we're facing would be, one, how do you create or incentivize algorithmic responsibility? And so I actually quite like that there's a focus of the idea that there needs to be some sort of accountability for algorithms. I just think that it's too easy and it's an impractical solution. The idea that you could audit the algorithms, potentially, say, of a private company, I just don't see that as being workable. Another problem for lawmakers is that data doesn't have a physical presence. It doesn't have borders, it doesn't have boundaries, so capturing it within one jurisdiction is difficult. Data is transborder. 
And so how we create a Canadian-specific framework that's actually enforceable is, is a challenge. And we're seeing this debated at the Court of Justice of the European Union recently. It went to the Supreme Court of Canada as well. And we're seeing it play out in the discussion really about something else, which is the idea that can you, say, have a right to be forgotten online or, say, more specifically, a right to be delisted from, for example, search results? And should a court in Canada grant an injunction to delisting of content worldwide, which is a jurisdictional problem, right? That data crosses borders. Should a Canadian court be able to make that decision worldwide or should it be more localized? So I think that the two biggest influencers are uh, both Europe and the United States. I think that the one that has been most influential in recent years has been Europe. The European uh, Competition Authority issued some pretty important decisions that uh, aimed at reining in essentially big tech. And so I think competition is an avenue that we're going to see is increasingly influential um, on this particular area. And I think that we're going to still see it coming out of Europe. And then the other thing we saw coming out of Europe was the introduction of the general data protection regulation, which basically boils down to much more stringent privacy obligations on business with really hefty fines if they don't comply with those particular rules. Um, the reason that both Europe and the United States continue to be influential is that the U.S. still pushes quite a big free market approach when it comes to regulation of tech. So I think we're seeing a standoff, and it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out between Europe, which is pushing for greater regulation, and the United States, where you're seeing a much bigger push for the continued deregulated market that we see. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but you get the idea that generally um, the, the tech businesses have been kind of left to themselves in this unregulated space to develop their business models. We're seeing pushback. You see these, all these hearings about Facebook in the United States. Uh, was your data included in the data sold to the malicious third parties? Yes. It was. No, are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. Um, but it certainly hasn't amounted to anything, be it partly because they don't have coordinated federal regulation of, say, for example, privacy the way that we do in Canada. Uh, I would love to see Canada as a leader here. And although Canada normally doesn't play a leading role, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. And one of the reasons I think that is because Canada is a real bridge between the European and the American approaches in this space. And so it'll be really interesting to see this kind of what Canada could come up with in this sort of bridging role. I think one of the things that it's worth mentioning is how these types of um, disinformation campaigns have worked and what has changed. And I think one of the things that it might be useful for the listeners to know is that, you know, the, the old ways that we used to, um, the digital marketers, for example, would work, or not digital, but just marketers in general would be, for example, it might uh, push products to women between the ages of 35 and 50 who live in the suburbs, for example. So you might figure out gender and age and location and kind of figure that out. What has profoundly changed is the fact that they can essentially micro-target people based on a lot more intimate psychological profiles. So they figure out what um, kind of their 
essential viewpoints are on the world? Are they more outgoing? Are they creative? Are they more cautious? All these features about them. And they gain this information just by the fact that we go online, right? So every time you go to a website, um, what you're searching ends up being picked, you know, the sites you visit are picked up by data analytics and shared with data analytics companies, and they're creating profiles about you. Every time you like something on Facebook or you just slow down scrolling through your Facebook feed, every time you share content, you're leaving like these little digital bits out there about the way that you think. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. Certainly, uh, the, uh, today, uh, uh, in the era of uh, mega data, uh, we are finding that data drives uh, everything, including uh, consumer behavior. And so consumer information is probably the most valuable information you can get in the data ecosystem. And certainly, folks, as you've mentioned in your testimony here, people like the fact that they can have targeted ads that they're going to be interested in, as opposed to being bombarded by a lot of ads that they don't have any interest in. Uh, and that consumer information is important in order for you to tailor that. Uh, but also people are now beginning to wonder, uh, is there an expense to that uh, when it comes to perhaps exposing them to being manipulated or through uh, deception? Uh, you've talked about artificial intelligence. You brought that up uh, many times during your testimony. And I know you're, you've employed some new algorithms to target bots, bring down fake accounts, deal with terrorism, things that you've talked about in this hearing. But you also know that artificial intelligence is not without its risk and that you have to be very transparent about how those uh, algorithms uh, are constructed. Uh, how do you see uh, artificial intelligence, more specifically, uh, dealing with the ecosystem by helping to get consumer insights, but also keeping consumer privacy safe? Senator, I think the, the core question you're asking about AI transparency is a really important one that people are just starting to very seriously study, and that's ramping up a lot. And I think this is going to be a very central question for how we think about AI systems over the next decade and beyond. Right now, a lot of our AI systems um, make decisions in ways that uh, people don't really understand. Right. And I don't think that in 10 or 20 years in the future that we all want to build, um, we want to end up with systems that people don't understand how they're making decisions. So having doing the research now um, to make sure that, the, that these systems um, can have those principles as we're developing them, I think is certainly a, an extremely important thing. I, I mean, if I saw the profile about myself, I'd probably be really shocked at how intimate. <laughs> I'm probably shocked to find out information about myself, right? About who it thinks that I am. And it's because of this that the targeting of either advertising or disinformation campaigns are now possible. Um, and I want to add to this that one of the major proposals for fixing this, when they say, well, how should we regulate it, is, is well, we should flag content as, um, as being untrue, right? We should hire an army of people. I know Facebook has, has done some of this, and, and kind of flag and point out to people that there's really maybe a questionable source. We do care deeply about giving people a voice and, and freedom of expression. Those are some of the founding values of, of the company. At the same time, we also hear consistently from our community that people want us uh, to stop the spread of misinformation. So what we do is uh, we, we try to focus on, on misinformation that has the potential to lead to uh, physical harm or imminent harm. 
Meanwhile, Google has announced that its YouTube streaming service has disabled over 200 channels, appearing to engage in what it calls an influence operation around the Hong Kong protests. It says the channels behaved in a coordinated manner while uploading videos related to the Hong Kong protests, such as through calling the participants dangerous, vile extremists. Google officials stopped short of identifying the origin of those channels. And this comes after Twitter and Facebook said that they dismantled a similar campaign that appeared to originate from mainland China. I think that should be done, but I think that the limits of that approach need to be acknowledged so that we push a bit deeper to try to find a better solution. And, and that's because a lot of the empirical work in this area has shown that, um, that when you point out to people that what they're consuming and reading is, is untrue, and a lot of this is out of like old media studies, right, they've been doing for decades, um, what they find is that all it does is reinforce people's political or viewpoints. It entrenches them in their views. So it doesn't correct it. They don't get the facts and say, oh, now I'm corrected and I understand better and my viewpoint has changed. They just double down. The new and unprecedented advantage or disadvantage of online data and algorithm-driven marketing is that this sort of marketing is based on more complete and robust psychological profiles of the target market than was ever possible in the pre-internet days. The structure of the internet itself makes this new type of marketing possible. When you use the internet, you emanate data. Details as mundane as click speed are often used to determine things about your personality or at least your mental state at the time. And with this intimate portrait collected from many, many seemingly mundane details, advertisers and sometimes malicious actors as well, including bots, are able to manipulate us in ways that we never would have been susceptible to in the past, uh, arguably at least. What it targets would be people's underlying fears, for example, their motivations. Um, it might be their aspirations. And so it connects with them on this emotional level. And because they participate in it and sharing in it, then they're invested in a different way. And then they share it with others who might be like-minded like them. And so it ends up being just, it, it's, it's shared and accepted in a way that old forms of propaganda and marketing just couldn't possibly achieve. If you're interested to learn more about any of these topics, Professor Laidlaw had some useful suggestions for further uh, reading and listening. For some of the big issues in tech, there's some really great podcasts. Um, the Atlantic has a great podcast dealing with digital tech issues, like big discussions about artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, if you're looking for Canada-specific blogs, Michael Geist has an excellent blog that's always up to date, critically analyzing and discussing some of the major tech legal issues in Canada. And also, if you're looking for something more specific to national security, uh, for example, uh, you could take a look at, say, the Intrepid podcast, which is um, Ken Roach and, and Craig Forsey's uh, do the work on the, the Intrepid podcast. I would say just more generally for news, I'm a big fan of reading The Guardian. It's more UK-specific, but it has a wonderful technology section. They've done great work recently studying issues such as online abuse. Um, they have uh, excellent breakdowns of a lot of the major European cases. And as you know, I talked about that they're such, having such a huge influence on Canada. It's a good resource to get to know those issues.
Before we conclude, we'd like to leave you with something to think about, which is we've been talking a lot about how to regulate online disinformation campaigns, pernicious speech, and so on, but not why. What is the moral foundation for this policy approach? This is nothing like an easy question, but it's still worth considering when you're making decisions about who to vote for and so on. Questions like, does disinformation present a real threat to democracy? And on a more basic level, what does it mean to threaten democracy? What is democracy? A question like this one may seem too simple to even be worth considering, but thinking deeply about it can help reveal your underlying values and how you might see the stakes of the battle against disinformation and online propaganda differently than other people. From there, you can question whether or not your values are worth preserving or if they need to change. All part of the process of being a reflective and critical follower of the news. Thank you for listening. This episode of Hearsay was created by Jack Hoskins, Gregory Radisic, and me, Shiloh Melashenko. We record this at CJSW Studios at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Hearsay is a project of the Calgary chapter of Pro Bono Students Canada, a national network of law students. Thanks to our guest, Emily Laidlaw, for her time and wisdom on today's show. You can download Hearsay as a podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next month.